1: I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land.
2: Venezuela, Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Equal podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the past seven days and how we got here. On today's episode…
1: I, I hate that feeling of being detached from people when you're trying to tell their story.
3: What about all of the people who are inside? Like, It's not as though these people
4: are gone, they're just hidden from sight. There's still hope. Humanity will be united and we're going to become something stronger. Closer to each other than before.
0: Last week, the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. surged. There are only two states in the whole country that are seeing a decline in cases, with many others hitting record highs. Meanwhile, Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, tested positive for the virus, and so did the interim president of Bolivia. More than six months on from the initial outbreak, and there's no sign that this is going away. Instead, it's more like we're entering a new phase with this pandemic. After months of collective sacrifice, countries around the world seem to have reached their quarantine breaking point and are starting to reopen, even if it's too soon. It's clear that there's not going to be a day of suddenly going back to normal, and instead, we're going to be living inside of a new normal for a while. And yet most of us are fighting against a feeling of weariness and complacency after so many months of this. As we try to rally ourselves for what's still ahead, this week on the pod, I'd like to look back on where we've come from. For months, the whole world has been consumed with one problem, one story, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. But on the other hand, even though we've all been living through and fighting against the same virus, there are really millions of stories of how we've all experienced this differently. Today, I'm going to bring you four of them. Four stories, four countries four different experiences of the coronavirus pandemic. Back in April, one of the hotbeds of the virus was New York. Across the state of New York, there were nearly as many deaths as in the whole of Italy, another virus epicenter. And the city of New York got the worst of it. One of the worst-hit neighborhoods was a transport hub called Jamaica in Queens. There, stuck inside an apartment building where she lived with her brother, was a journalist named Sasha von Oldershausen.
3: As a journalist, I have, like, normally, under normal conditions, perpetual anxiety about telling stories as they're happening. You know, when major crises happen, there's this, like, hustle and this anxiety of, like, oh, I need to tell this story. Really, I felt for myself
0: that all I can do
3: is try to witness it.
0: Just before the lockdown, Sasha managed to buy a bike from a shop around the corner. When the city shut down, Sasha took to cruising around the eerily deserted streets on her bike. The bustling hub was suddenly empty. Back at the apartment, her brother Justin, a photographer, was also trying to figure out a way to capture and make sense of the events they were living through.
3: I remember when Justin kind of pitched the story to me, he was like, in the very beginning, people were really stunned by these really impressive photographs of empty streets in New York. And Justin came to me and said, you know, everyone is kind of doing this, which is, it makes sense. It's a startling thing. It's what drew me out on my bike. But what about all of the people who are inside? Like, it's not as though these people are gone. They're all here still, but they're just hidden from sight. And so he had this idea, which I loved, which was like this, kind of intimate take on what this pandemic looks like.
0: The idea Justin came up with was a portrait series of some of the residents in their building, just standing in their doorways, interrupted for a second from their domestic tasks.
5: You know, obviously some people were much more engaged with it than others. This is Justin. But what I did get the sense of is like once we actually were there doing the shoot, everyone had a lot on their mind that they wanted to get out. And when I originally had the idea for me it was just like a photo project but then i thought like you know my sister is in the building she's a writer it would be great to uh, involve a written component to it and
1: now
2: let's try both of you back
1: to back so like
3: uh you know yeah and mother-in-law. yeah like that or- Um, is there anything that you're really looking forward to when yeah. all of this is over? Like the first thing you want to do when this ends? Yeah, um,
0: actually yeah, to so oh. go to mass I the Catholic church. Oh, for the Go to church.
3: Go to church. Yeah. Where is your church? Parsons volume. Parsons Is it it's a Catholic church? Yeah. So many, so many things to think about. Yeah. Like. <laughs> going to the beach, just going yeah, yeah. outside. Yeah,
0: because um, my baby is going to turn one here.
5: Oh, um, oh wow. May 31st, so
0: we were excited to celebrate. And, oh, so,
3: yeah. To yeah. have a birthday party for him. Yeah, like go what, um, what, what else are you, Mohammed? What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to go outside and play the park. Which <laughs> parts do you go to? We go to one time. Um, what do you want to do in the park? What do you usually we do? Play? Play, we, we play cricket. Oh, you, play, you said you play cricket. Sometimes yeah. basketball
5: or sometimes soccer. Cool. In the middle to the,
4: uh, monkey. Who's the best at cricket? Uh, oh, uh, sometimes
5: <laughs> I am. And
2: sometimes he. Umar, like, do you have okay, a say in have this? Have, was, <laughs> I
1: So you can go out, do what you want
4: to do, but you can't go out and do big like you think you want to because everything's not, nothing's gonna be the same.
2: So, like in my opinion, I'm gonna try to take it slow. I'll try it's not gonna be easy because you know temptation. It's really hard to resist.
0: When Sasha started talking to the neighbors, she realized that they had a lot to say that had just been building up over the weeks of isolation. But what they talked about wasn't frustration with the situation or their fears or even their pain.
3: I remember one of the first people we interviewed, a woman named Gandhi Ward, we were asking, you know, what she had learned in quarantine, and she said that she learned that people were could be really helpful, and she mentioned The guys at the corner bodega helping her out when she ordered food and like really just making sure that she was taken care of. And we asked, you know, how have they been taking care of you? And she said, "Um, when I asked for sauce, she asked for extra sauce on her order. And they went beyond the call of duty on the
0: sauce. The project was eventually published in the New York Times as a photo article with the title, Meet the Neighbors. In the introduction, Sasha writes, As New Yorkers, we tend to live our lives without ever really knowing our neighbors. They're the people we hear through the walls, their voices and clatter above and below. Sometimes we share intimate moments through these walls. Fights and lovemaking, or a baby crying through the night. The smells of dinner drift through doors and commingle in the lobby. But over the past weeks, there has been an unexpected upside to the quarantine. We're getting to know each other better. Of course, for safety reasons, getting closer to their neighbors didn't mean physically close. Both Justin and Sasha tried to stay as far back as possible while doing the photo shoots and conducting the interviews.
3: He would be backed up against the wall, and I would be like an additional 10 feet away from them down the hallway. So um, I was present, but
0: far
1: away. I I hate that feeling of being detached from people when you're trying to tell their story.
0: This is Joe Inwood, a BBC producer in Kenya. You might remember him from a Where We Are episode back in late March when he and I spoke just as COVID-19 was starting to reach Africa. As horribly vulnerable as so many Kenyans are economically to a pandemic like this, the health infrastructure is completely vulnerable as well. I mean, basic things like, you know, basic sanitization techniques are hard to come by, right?
1: Whatever we do, our health infrastructure is not going to be able to stand up to this thing. You know, we talk about in, in Europe and other places, they talk about flattening the curve. This idea I'm sure your, your listeners know about of, of bringing down the peaks so they basically never get above a level that a health system like, for example, the NHS in the UK can cope with. Now, that theory only applies when you've got a health system which, you know, you could realistically could cope with uh, the flattened curve, as it were. Here, somewhere like Kenya, I mean, as I said, you know, the doctors will, and nurses and, and paramedics will fight this thing valiantly, but they're f- gonna fight a losing battle in many ways because they just don't have the number of ventilators you need, the, num- you know, the base level is so low, and I don't mean that as a criticism of anyone, it's just a fact of, a fact of reality, really.
0: A few months later, I decided to check in with him and oh, see how
1: things had gone since we last spoke. I think that should be perfect. I think you can be able to hear, you can hear me. and just yep. going through the headphones. So we are good. Okay, perfect. I'm going to say I've never been happier that I was probably, or about pretty much certainly wrong. I remember when we when we last spoke, I was feeling maybe I was trying not to show it too much, but I was really quite pessimistic about what was going to happen here. You know, I think we discussed about the idea that there there seemed to have been two public policy responses that had worked in tackling this. One was extreme lockdown of an almost dictatorial fashion and track, trace, isolate, test the South Korean model. And I I predicted that those two were virtually impossible and unachievable for a nation like Kenya and not not for lack of intelligence or will or anything, but just because of resources. And I predicted that things were gonna be really, really tough and I'm, I was wrong. That's, that's where we are. We, I'm delight, delighted that I wasn't right. Two of the stories we've done have been, why is Africa doing so well? How is Africa getting through this? And that's actually been the question that we've been asking ourselves and have been asked, is why, why is Africa not or not all of that, but why is Kenya not suffering so badly? So, so the story we were doing was preventative measures uh, across Africa and how Africa has dealt well with this pandemic. Now, one of the things that we wanted to do was to focus first on this place, Eastleigh. Eastleigh is this, the part of Kenya that has been locked down most severely. Um, and we wanted to see how, if, the lockdown was working.
4: It's the first time I've been to Eastleigh since the government announced restrictions into and out of the estate.
1: Our intention was to go and film the deserted streets of Eastleigh and to see the testing that was going on, but when we got there, there were thousands of people everywhere. Our initial plan was to go there and do what we would normally do at a safe social distance and do all those things, and we realised it was impossible. We did our filming from the car. It was. And, and we basically had to make that decision on the fly. I mean, sort of do everything in your head as you move, as you go. So you have to build your narratives and change your narratives and change your, the, the way you want to use pictures to tell the story depending on what you see in front of you. And what we saw in front of us was a completely impossible situation to put yourself in. And so we had to make that decision. We said, well, look, actually, we make that part of the story. We make the story that we'd wanted to come and get out and film. We, we didn't, weren't quite this explicit about it. The audience can see when you're showing them these pictures of just thousands and thousands of people crowding around in the middle of the worst outbreak of of COVID-19 in the country.
4: We drove around one of Nairobi's hotspots. I'm really shocked. You don't get a sense that this is being taken seriously here.
1: The truth, is, the truth is complicated, and it is, it is. And it is both simultaneously the case that the place in, within Kenya that we found where we thought we were going to see the most strict lockdown adhered to wasn't really adhering to it. But they, where people were wearing masks and Kenya is still doing comparatively well. There are parts of the BBC, specifically BBC Africa, who are covering COVID wall to wall for an African audience. And they are, they are, so for them, they, they are covering it relentlessly. I happen to work for the part of the BBC that reflects Africa back to a British audience. And so my remit as as the BBC producer here is to tell the story of Kenya and of Africa, actually, to the world. And I'm delighted to say that Kenya has not been the story.
0: For Joe, this is a strange feeling. After covering crisis after crisis in Africa, struggles and calamities that usually well outstripped anything that was happening in his home country, he suddenly found himself on the other side. The real crisis was across the water back home.
1: You know, I, I used to cover Syria, during the Syrian civil war, and you're like, no, come on, the story that you're talk, you're fussed about this story back in the UK, that's not as, that's not as significant as the Syrian civil war, come on. But actually this is one of those rare event occasions when I'm actually like, I as an international journalist think, oh, actually the bigger, the bigger death toll, the greater, the greater human toll, is actually, is back in the UK. And I understand why there is, that is just going to dominate everything. It's quite a rare thing in my time as a journalist to think that actually, the objectively greater human catastrophe is the one that takes place at home. That is something I've never dealt with before. And it's something actually I'm just kind of, I'm possibly reflecting on a bit more now as we speak and it's but it does it does slightly fit it's a strange one as a journalist to see this huge story gripping your home home nation and feeling like you're not that much a part of it
0: Meanwhile back in Joe's home country a Japanese sound artist Yuri Suzuki prepared to lock down with his partner in a house in Kent. Yuri had been living in London since 2003, but as cases began to surge in the city and a lockdown was imminent, he and his partner decided to move to the seaside.
5: Basically, I'm locked down in the house, and apart from talking with my partner, there's no physical connection to anyone. And uh, that was quite surreal feeling. We used to like, meet people quite easily for outside, but suddenly you were in environment completely disconnected with society. So that was quite surreal and uh, quite scary as well.
0: In the middle of this intense isolation, Yudi, just like Justin and Sasha's neighbors, also found himself becoming more reflective, more sensitive to things he might have ordinarily missed.
5: Because of pandemic situation, people focus on one sound because you started stuck on your house. And you start caring about acoustics, first of all, like uh, because you're talking with someone in the Zoom or like a Skype. Um, you can actually feel like how like your voice can kind of evolve, or like acoustic is kind of you know, it's actually not great or like something uncomfortable. Like there's more and the more touch point to listening sound, even in the house, noticing for sound design of the so you are like equipment such as kind of a kettle or like electric equipment and also notice sound from phone and so on because you were literally like inside of the house like more than ever.
0: Of course, this is probably what you would expect from a sound artist. But Yuri felt keenly that this went well beyond his personal love of sound. Sound, he was sure, was an essential tool for archiving this weird moment in history.
5: We never experienced this kind of situation before and hope like we won't experience again this kind of things. But uh, I think archiving it, kind of keeping it, like saving the, our moment now is I think one of the mission as well, I feel. And the reason why like uh, using sound is sound sometimes kind of capture atmosphere as well, because uh, I do feel like the uh, picture or like literature that could be like capturing the moment. But at the same time, to think about atmosphere, like a feeling surrounding the moment, actually like sound is probably the best medium to saving it.
0: Not only was it a way to capture the strange experience, but as millions of people around the world were just as cut off and isolated as Yuri himself, sound could be a way to restitch some of these connections. He decided to put together a new project, and he called it Sound of the Earth, Pandemic Chapter.
5: So there's kind of like a website, a bespoke website. So once you start it, you can see the kind of really black sphere image. And that's actually obviously representing basically this Earth. And if you click to begin, um, there's kind of a recording button or like audio submissions button there. So either you can record your own audio or you can actually submit video files. I was thinking this like, web-based project is actually, um, you can actually sending a message from the other side of the world. That browsing experience, you feel like it's still connected with this like part of the world. And the feeling like still like this world is still moving and people still exist.
0: Contribute to the project, recording anything they want. Their location is GPS located, and their audio contribution appears as a little white dot on the dark globe.
5: When we started this project, like uh, if you access the website, it's totally black and nothing was there. But if you access the website now, like there's a lot of dot and it looks like starting forming of the world. We can see the continent or country shape. So that's quite amazing to like many sound actually kind of forming like shape of the world as well.
0: Meanwhile, thousands of miles away in a city in Zambia, a nun was leveraging the power of sound herself. As the virus was ravaging the rest of the world, Sister Ostrada Zamba worried what it might do to her country with its fragile health system. And she was especially worried when she realized that the people around her weren't
4: nearly as worried as she was. Those days, the comments they'll say is, uh, this disease is from the West. It's the Western uh, disease, so we can't get it. And even if the ministry told us that we should maintain one meter distance, social distancing, you hear they're saying, sister, you're also scared, as if you don't pray, believe in God. And I thought... There are so many people with myths around this, this virus, you see.
0: Sister Astridah and her fellow sisters received training from a nonprofit in the
4: U.S. about combating the virus. Dr. Mark was telling us that our aim, our intention is to reduce the spread of the disease so that we could allow the, the, the people in the medical field to look after us in case we get the virus. But if we overwhelm the medical staff, if we overwhelm the health sector, it means they will not be able to look after us. And so the infections will keep spreading. The care will go up. So when, when, when I was empowered with that training, I felt I, I had a clear understanding how the, the virus is spread. After the training, they shared with us some key messages around COVID. So I felt that now the relevant information and I needed now to share with an audience. (laughs) Then I thought, okay, I normally don't meet people in the market. I don't usually interact with a huge number of audience, but there are these people, there's this audience that we have not reached. Therefore I thought, okay, how about going on radio?
2: The time is 10.01 on Radio Maria at Sunny Voice. And uh, welcome to this special program. My name is Stephen Chongo. And uh, the program is brought to you by the Zambia Association of Sisterhoods. I'm sure by now we all know that uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19 has affected every aspect of our lives. And every stakeholder is doing something to help... Uh, spread the message that will indeed lead to the prevention and also eradication of this pandemic. And one such uh, stakeholder is the Zambia Association of Sisterhoods, and they've come to the studios to help us and uh, engage our dear listeners on how we can share the best practices on this uh, disease that is so dangerous and has taken many lives. So in the studios, I have Sister Strida Kasanika banda She is a Dominican
4: sister. So the moderator's role was to ensure that the, the, the program started kicking. So they introduced the panelists. So we were the panelists with the key messages. He didn't even have them himself. So he introduced us and then uh, we just told him our program is on COVID awareness. So this is what we want to share with the people. And once you open the phone lines, we are going to talk about best practices. People can contribute, ask questions. So then what happened was among ourselves, the three, we shared the key messages. So I knew that I'm going to talk about importance of good nutrition for prevention of COVID-19. Why do I need to boost my immune system? What should I eat within the local setting? What we have as vegetables? So. If I finish mentioning the key messages around that, if one of the panelists feels that I missed a key point, she would add to add on to what Sister Shrida said, we also need to eat this vegetable or that mixed with what? Then um, because people have been listening to this radio station, they already have the open phone line that they use for phoning programs. So if, even before the phone line was open, they started phoning. I remember him <laughs> saying, oh, hold on, we are going to tell you when we open the lines. So there was a lot of congestion, like our first program, most people wanted to phone in, but we didn't have much airtime for broadcasting the whole show. So they wanted to phone in. And even when I listened later during the day, there were people calling, oh, I'm calling for that program that was aired in the morning. And so they also would talk on the background and so forth.
0: (laughs) Well, the aim of the show is to spread awareness of COVID-19 and make sure the community is taking it seriously. Sister Ashida explains that it's not about stoking fear. As much as possible, they keep the show light, casual, and engaging.
4: So we tried as much as possible to add life to it. You see, the way I'm convincing with you, that someone could easily pick up and say, these are kind of calm people, I can talk to them. So um, we could laugh within, within the studio, the three finalists, with the moderator who was also conducting the show. So we could crack jokes around <laughs> it. <laughs> so it kind of brought our listeners to feel at ease that you see coronavirus is there. We can do our part. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be afraid, but we need to do the preventive measures. So I think it brought a message home to the people to say it's a reality. It's happening within our community as well. And we have a role to play. There's still hope for me. There's still hope in the midst of all these um, whatever is happening around us. You know, people have lost um, so much hope. People have, have, have lost jobs. But there's still hope. I feel something good will match. The humanity will be united and we're going to become something stronger, closer to each other than before.